Good morning, church. Can everybody hear me? Good. I've been lecturing for 21 years, and I've never lectured with one of these. So I feel a bit like uh, David going to Goliath with too much armor. But, um, you know, many people have asked me, why, why do we call the Bible the Word of God? And today we'll be looking at this, why we call the Bible the Word of God. And my desire today is that each one of us here in church today will realize the gift that we've got from God, the value of this, whether we are Christians or non-Christians, young or old, that we will realize this immense gift that God has given to us when we walk out here today. Let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that we could meet you as a church, that we could just study your scriptures and give you all the glory, Lord. Thank you that you have given us this word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we just um, want to give you all the glory, Lord. Thank you that we know this church builds its foundation on your word. We pray, Lord, that this will continue through Pastor Gareth and the leadership. And Lord, I ask you just to speak, um, that it be all for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. So the scripture reading this morning is from 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Ironically, we're going to talk about the entire Bible and I've only got two verses for scripture reading. So, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, like I've said, we're looking at the Bible as the Word of God today. And as Christians, we have a very high regard for this book to the extent that we call it the Word of God. We read it, we apply it, we realize that God is speaking to us through this, this book but when we look at verses like 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, we see that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. So God is the author. God is the author of this book. And if God is the author, then J.C. Ryle said the following. He said, we need to read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasure. We need to get, dig into this book. If, this is, if God is the author of this book, we need to dig into it and study it. J.C. Ryle also said that the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. And another person, John Blanchard, he said that to talk about the Bible and not clarify exactly who Jesus is, is like going to play a football game with no football. So if God is the author and Jesus is the key to understanding this book, then I think we need to look anew at exactly who Jesus is. Most of us here sitting here will know who Jesus is, but I think we, let's just look at Jesus again with new, fresh eyes. So this sermon will be in three parts. One, who is Jesus? And then once we realize who Jesus is, he's the key to understanding the Bible. Let's say what Jesus says about the Bible in part two. And then in part three, what is the message that Jesus wants to tell us through this Bible if he's the key to understanding the Bible? So in part one, let's look at the, who is Jesus? And like I said, most of us know this, but... Let's just look at this again from new. Just, let's just open ourselves to see if we can learn something new. Now, Robert prayed this so beautifully this morning. Let's start with, with John 1, verse 1 to 3. Because when you talk about Jesus, where do you start? So many sermons have been preached about Jesus, and so many books have been written. But let's, for this sermon, let's just focus on what Robert prayed this morning as well. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so John makes it clear that the Word was God. And verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and, grace the truth, grace and truth. Now John was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. For three years he spent his life with Jesus. He's an eyewitness of all these accounts. And he clearly tells us that the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So he gave a divine and a human nature to Jesus. So briefly, let's just look at Jesus' human nature. We read about the Bible that Jesus was born a baby, he grew up as a boy, and he had emotions that we as humans would have. He was hungry, he was tired, he slept, he wept, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, he grew very, very anxious. Yet Jesus, as, as, as human being, never sinned. And let's use that to link it to his divine nature, because that's what we want to get at. We want to look at the divine nature of Jesus. Now, the divine nature, I'm going to look, look at that in just three broad categories. One, the claims made about Jesus by himself, by his friends, and by other people. One, the claims. Two, we look at the miracles Jesus performed. And three, the prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. Now, again, it's very limited. I, I'm to, this, uh, this is almost encourage you to, go, to study. To go and study this. It's amazing to study this because I'm going, only going to touch on snippets from the Bible. So firstly, some very bold claims were made about Jesus by himself and by other people. The claims made by Jesus concerning himself. We know that Jesus taught with a lot of authority and he had immense knowledge. This is what we read in the Bible. So the people stood in awe of what Jesus was teaching them. And in using this knowledge and this authority, Jesus proclaimed boldly that he was the answer. He would say he was the way to the Father, he was the bread of life, the living water, the good shepherd, the light of the world. He said that, that everyone who listens to his words and follow them are like a house on a rock and the winds and the storms will come and they will have a solid foundation if they follow his words. You know, some religious leaders would say, this is the way, follow it. But Jesus would say, I'm the way, follow me. So he made very prominent claims about who he was. Jesus linked himself to the Old Testament prophecies and, for example, said that Moses wrote about him in John 5, verse 46. He said that the prophets point towards him. I'd just like to look at one verse in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus linked himself to Abraham and called himself God indirectly by saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, we know our Bible, most of, you, most of us here. Yeah. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God appears to the prophet Moses in a burning bush, and he tells Moses, go and speak to this Egyptian pharaoh and tell him to let his people go, the people of God go. And Moses asks God, who must I say sent me? And God says, say, I am sent you. So Jesus was calling himself God. He was saying, before Abraham was, I am on several occasions, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. We can read it that in Mark uh, 8, 9, and 10, Matthew 16, and Luke. All the Gospels talk about this. So very bold claims were made by Jesus concerning himself. Let's look at some claims made by people. Mark, who wrote the second Gospel in the New Testament, was a, 
Um, he wrote down the accounts according to Peter, who was the disciple and follower of Jesus as well. Mark starts the gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark has no secret about who he thought God was. We've already alluded to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a prophet who baptized people, and he prepared the way for Jesus Christ. And when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later he testified and bore, that he could born, he, he, he bore witness that Jesus was the Son of God. Paul made it clear what he thought, that Jesus was divine. Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my God. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this last claim that was made by Peter to start linked to the indirect claims made about Jesus. And when Peter did this, what did Jesus do? He did not say, Peter, do not say this, you are blaspheming. What did Jesus do? He accepted this worship. This is the first indirect claim that Jesus made to show that he was seeing himself, he was God. So when Peter said, you are the son of God, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bariona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There are many examples in the Bible where Jesus accepted worship. Now when we read the book of Acts, Peter and Paul were very quick to stop the people when they were worshiping him. We are merely men. Don't worship us. You must worship Jesus. The second indirect claim is that Jesus forgave sins of other people that only God can forgive. Now, if we, if we are friends and we do something against each other, and I do something against my friend, and I ask him to forgive me, this is different. We can forgive each other. But Jesus forgave sins that only God could forgive. Now, I realize that making claims, you, you know, anybody can make a claim. Claim doesn't necessarily make you divine, but this, let's, let's look at this. Remember, this is part of the big picture of who Jesus is. Secondly, let's look at the miracles of Jesus. And let's look at the miracles of Jesus by looking at the miracles he performed over nature. He healed many people over sicknesses. The miracles he had over the spiritual world or the, the evil spirits. And lastly, his power over death. So when we look at his miracles of nature, we know that he, he, he calmed storms, he walked on water, he multiplied bread and fish. When the disciples were catching nothing, what did he do? He gave them a massive catch of fish. He appeared through walls and rooms. Secondly, he healed many, many people. He healed the blind, the deaf, the people who could not walk. Right, the, the healed leapers. There's only a few examples of the the sicknesses that Jesus healed. Jesus cast out evil spirits, and the evil spirits were, were afraid of him. So he had power over these demons, over these evil spirits. And lastly, Jesus had power over death. And we know this, in three, at, for at least on three occasions in the Gospels, it's recorded where Jesus, record, was, uh, uh, Jesus uh, rose three people from the dead, at least three people. And the ultimate miracle, if I can call it that, is where Jesus himself rose from the dead. Now this I want to look at in just a little bit more detail quickly. Jesus rose from the dead himself. And I want to look at this in four toppings. One, Jesus was dead. He was crucified. It was Jesus on the cross and he was dead. He was crucified until he died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb of a well-known person. Thirdly, that, a few days later, that tomb was empty. And fourthly, he appeared to people on several occasions. So firstly, it was Jesus who was crucified on the cross and he died on that cross. 
How do we know it was Jesus? Because firstly, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. So he would have been a false prophet if he had not uh, been crucified. Secondly, Jesus would have stopped his disciples of proclaiming him to be the risen Lord and Savior if, it was, if he had not been crucified. Do you agree with me? Thirdly, Jesus was speaking on the cross. He spoke to his mother. He spoke to John, who was a disciple very close to him. He spoke to the thief who was crucified next to him. He was heard praying on the cross. One of his prayers was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What an amazing prayer that Jesus was praying while he was being crucified in our place. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus was flogged severely. He was so weak he couldn't carry his own cross. And then his death was confirmed by the Roman centurion who verified that he was dead. And these Roman centurions, according to history, could pay for their life if they were wrong. Secondly, when a spear was thrust in Jesus' side, blood and water came out. This is a medical condition showing that Jesus had stopped living. Lots of research has been done about that. You can go and read it. It's very interesting. And then thirdly, the Jewish history and the Roman history shows us that shows us that the Romans were experts at killing people via crucifixion. They did not make mistakes. So secondly, Jesus was then buried in the tomb of a well-known person. Who was this person? Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So the location of Jesus' body, dead body, was known. There could be no confusion about him being confused or missing in a mass grave where a lot of bodies were lying, because that's what often happened during crucifixions of those time. Thirdly, a few days later, this tomb, of which the location was known, was empty. And you know, I don't want to go into detail, but all the theories that have tried to prove, yeah, but the body was stolen, all of them have been refuted convincingly. Just long story short, why, you know, if Jesus' disciples moved the body, why would they do that if Jesus was dead and proclaim a risen saviour and be martyred for this. Why would they do that? On the other hand, if it was the Romans or the Jewish authorities or trying to move the body, they wanted to do end the Christian movement. So they just had to produce the body. Many other theories have been refuted. And then lastly, I just want to look at the fourth point, that Jesus appeared to different people on several occasions, different uh, settings. So is it possible that these people could have been hallucinating? No, because hallucinations are individual occurrences. And on, a, on at least four occasions we see that Jesus appeared to a group of people. Secondly, hallucinations are often mental projections of what people hope for. Okay, so let's just look at four examples. One, the woman, when they went to the grave that Sunday morning, they were not expecting a risen Jesus. Do you agree with me? Do you agree with me? They were expecting, what were they going to do? To show respect to a dead Jesus. Mary, this is a very special story. When she went to the grave and the grave was empty, what did she think she thought happened? She thought the body was stolen. And she, she, saw, she thought, I'm getting excited here. She, she thought Jesus was the gardener. She said, what have you done? Where, just tell me where the body is. She was not hallucinating. Just imagine how she felt. When Jesus said, Mary, just imagine that, that click that she had. My goodness. And the, she realized what had happened. Thirdly, Thomas. Thomas was an apostle of Jesus, and he was not with the other apostles when Jesus appeared to them the first time. 
And when they told Thomas about this, he was in essence saying, I will refuse to hallucinate. You guys are dreaming, man. What did he say to you? Unless I put my finger in his side, I will not believe you. You guys are daydreaming. That's in essence what he was saying. I'm using my own words here. Is it me getting too excited or? <laughs> so Thomas, what happened a few days later? Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in my side. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He was not hallucinating. He was refusing to hallucinate. And then lastly, Paul. Paul, the Bible says, had murderous thoughts. He was on his way to Damascus to, what, to do what? To take captive these people. The Christians, he would finish this movement once and for all. And then Jesus Christ met him. He was not looking to see Jesus. He, in fact, he did not want to see Jesus. So can you see when we look at these, the, the, the people were not hallucinating. And when we look at the nature of Jesus' body, we realize it was a supernatural body because he could appear in rooms amongst the disciples. And yet he invited them to touch him. And he ate fish with him. You can go and read that in the, in the Bible. So the third part, looking at the divine nature of Jesus, is the prophecies concerning Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled. And there's a book, New Evidence for the Life and for the, uh, for the res Resurrection of Jesus, an amazing book. And they structured the prophecies according to three categories. One, you can look at the prophecies by looking at Jesus' ministry. You know, God himself said that, spoke about a great prophet that he would send. And he would lay his words in the mouth of this prophet. And Jesus said in John 17, I've given to them that the words which you, this is referring to God, have given me. Many prophecies concerning the ministry of Jesus. I'll just look at that one for now. Secondly, we can look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you read Isaiah 53, you can clearly see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus. So when you go and read that, you see, wow, this is amazing how Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. This is confirmed by Philip in the book of Acts. Go and read Acts 8, verse 26 to 35. This Ethiopian eunuch is busy reading from this book, Isaiah 53, this chapter from the scroll. And he's reading this, and Philip asks him, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand? He says, how can I know what I'm reading? And then what does Philip do? He tells him the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus himself confirmed this in Luke 22, verse 37. But I want to stand still just for a brief moment looking at Jesus' family tree. Firstly, the Bible predicts that Jesus would be born of a woman. He would not be an angel or a ghost or a spirit. He would be born of a woman. Secondly, would be, this woman would be a virgin. Thirdly, it would be from the family line of Abraham. Now, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and the Bible predicts fourthly that he would come from Isaac. Fifthly, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the Bible predicts he'd come from Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. And the Bible predicts it come from the tribe of Judah. And from within, within Judah, from the line of Jesse. And Jesse had several sons, and he would come from the line of David. And he would be born in Bethlehem. So it's amazing. We're looking at nine or ten categories here, just briefly. But you know what? Just before Jesus was to be born, where was Mary? She's 80 miles away from Bethlehem. She's in Nazareth. 
So it seems as if something's going to happen here. There's a big problem here because to fulfill this prophecy, Mary needs to be in Bethlehem. But God was always in control. And Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The king's heart, what does he do? The Roman government suddenly calls it a census. And you've got to go to the place of your birth. And Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem. Doesn't that give you like goosebumps to see the divine fingerprint of the fulfillment of these prophecies? Now, you know, I had to do this. I read this and it's so interesting. What is the probability of one man randomly fulfilling just eight prophecies? The answer is one in 10 to the power 17. One in 10 to the power 17. In my haste, I forgot to add a zero at the bottom there. Now, let's visualize this picture. When you take the state of Texas and you fill it up two feet deep with one Durham coins. Now, now UAE, UAE is smaller than Texas. So just because we know UAE, let's take UAE as an example. You fill up the UAE two feet deep with one Durham coins. And you mark one coin with a cross. I'm talking about from Western region to Al Ain, to Fajairah, to way up to Rak, Abu Dhabi, everywhere, all the desert, two feet deep. One coin is marked with a cross. And you blindfold somebody, you say, go into this desert and pick any coin. The probability of that person picking the, that coin that you've marked is the same probability of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled much more than eight prophecies. Humanly speaking, this is not possible. Do you see how God was in control? It was God's plan A from the beginning. So, there's only one conclusion we can make here. It is that Jesus is God. When we look at the claims that were made about him by himself, directly and indirectly, we look at the prophecies he fulfilled, we look at the miracles he performed, we've got to conclude that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, let us see what Jesus has to say about the book that points to him and the book that is about him. And this brings us to part two, Jesus and the Bible. Now, when you look at the Bible, it's divided into Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus and the Old Testament. The Bible that Jesus read was the Old Testament, let's be honest. It was the Jewish Bible. And Jesus declares the reliability of this Bible in several ways, the Old Testament. He says that the prophets wrote about him. Now, the Jewish Bible was divided in the law, the prophets, and the writings. These were the sections of the Old Testament. And Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 24, he said, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms are part of the writings. He was referring to the entire Old Testament. Jesus wrote in John 5, verse 39, that the scriptures bear witness about him. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 31 to 34, that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus called himself the Son of Man, and the Son of Man was a messianic figure prophesied in the book of Daniel, in a vision that Daniel had. When you go and do a study of what Jesus did in the Old Testament, he repeated, he quoted often from the Old Testament. He used it to teach. He referred to the Old Testament as the Word of God or the Scriptures. He cited from every major section in the Old Testament. He never contradicted the Old Testament. He never corrected it. Jesus was never corrected when he used it. Jesus only corrected people 
perceptions of what they had, maybe of the Old Testament. So he never, he never corrected the Old Testament. He corrected the perceptions that they might have about the Old Testament. When you go and read Matthew 5 to 7, for example. The Gospels record direct quotations of Jesus from at least 36 different passages. Direct quotations from at least 13 Old Testament books. And there are many, many more indirect quotations that Jesus did. You know, I want to look at only three ways how Jesus used the Old Testament. One, when he was tempted in the desert. We know that story. He was tempted by the devil. What did Jesus do? Did he say, be away, Satan, it is I, Jesus? No. What did Jesus say? He said, it is, it is written. He was referring to the Scriptures. Jesus used the Bible to teach people. When his religious opponents tried to catch him out, he used the Scriptures to correct them, to put them on their place. Jesus referred to many Old Testament figures historically, not in, not in spirit. He referred to them, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonah, Elisha, Elijah, Moses, Daniel, David, and there are more. But perhaps one of the most sweeping statements that Jesus made was when he said in John 10 verse 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. Isn't it amazing? When you go and do the study, it's amazing what Jesus, how he referred to the Old Testament. And we know that the Old Testament pointed to him. So we, you know, we had a copy of the Bible 900 years after Jesus was on earth. So some people have said, yeah, but you know, Jesus might have said this, but now we've, there's a big lot of opportunity for us to corrupt this Old Testament because we've only got a copy 900 years old after Jesus. So what happened in, in between, the time in between? And you know, God again just so shows us how much he is in control. A shepherd boy in 1947 is looking after a herd of goats and he's looking for a lost goat and he throws a stone into a cave to try and wake up this goat and if the goat's inside, he might get afraid, uh, frightened and come out. And he hears the sound of crushing, something crushing, and he investigates and he comes across this jar with scrolls, with the scrolls and copies of scrolls in it. Long story short, archaeologists move in, they find 12 caves with copies of something in it in these jars. And this became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls became the find of the century. And what were the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were copied. It was basically a community in Qumran. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, from roughly 300 before Jesus to 70 after, after Jesus. Uh, 300 BC to 70 uh, AD 70. And this community was faithfully copying and studying the scriptures. When they did a, when they did a um, comparison between these, so basically I, they were copying the Old Testament scriptures. And when they looked at the copy we had 900 years old, and they looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the copies of these that were made by this community, they, they noticed that the Bible was copied accurately. That the Bible we have is copied accurately over this whole period of 900 years. What I forgot to say is that these people, when the Romans came to invade the community in 70 AD, they put these scrolls in jars quickly and they hid them in these caves so that the Romans could not destroy these jars. Can you see how God even provided for that? You know, Robert Plummer said, for Christians accepting the 39 books of the Old Testament is relatively easy. One might say Jesus and his apostles affirmed it. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, I do the same. Now briefly, let's just look at what Jesus said about the New Testament. Now, the New Testament had not been written when Jesus was on earth. It was written afterwards. 
But Jesus said some very, very clear things about the New Testament. Firstly, Jesus commissioned the New Testament. Let's read Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. We did a very nice um, sermon series about Missions Focused Month. So all authority had been given to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is what Jesus said. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So he's commissioned the writing of the New Testament. And Jesus promised them that he would send them a helper. In John 14 we see, but Jesus said to them, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit would help them. The next verse, when the Spirit, in John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. So Jesus said, I've got authority. Go and teach them. Go and teach them. I'll send you help. The help will help you remember. And they'll help you remember the truth. And in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Witnesses. We saw Robert reading this this morning. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, going out wider Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And thank God for their faithfulness, because this is why you and I are sitting here today. And we see that the disciples were faithful because we see it in verses that Robert read this morning. 2 Peter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And further, further, furthermore, they said in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We are not, we are not talking... We are, we are giving the instructions what he has commanded us, what he has taught us to teach you. And they were conveying Jesus' message and knew, therefore, that it was the word of God. Listen carefully what they say in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, remember they were teaching them what Jesus had taught them, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now Jesus also said in Matthew 10 verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Isn't it amazing? And then Paul Timothy Jones wrote and he said that once the last eyewitnesses passed away, no more writings were received as authoritative because no more testimonies could come from Christ-commissioned witnesses of the resurrection. And these books were passed along from the very first eyewitnesses faithfully. They were preserved accurately from generation to generation until the final list was concluded in the 4th century. It was not voted for in the 4th century. It was just established because these books were passed along from the first generation Faithfully. They did it in the fourth century because then the, it, was, it was safe for the church to do so. Remember to do so. Remember in the first century they were persecuted for their faith. 
in the fourth century, there were also false doctrines coming in. These are the 27 books that we've received from the apostles, divinely inspired. This brings us to part three. So what is the message that Jesus wants to give us? Remember, we said Jesus is God. We saw that he, he said he affirmed the reliability of this book that points to him, talks about him. Now, what is this message about? What is the Bible about? You know, but there's one, one little interesting thing that we just need to clarify. We say the Bible is the Word of God, but we say that human authors wrote it. So how is this possible? If we say it's the Word of God, and there were human authors. Now, this is mind-boggling. Now, there were 66 books in the Bible. It was written over 55 generations. On three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three languages over a period of roughly 1,500 years, by as many as 40 authors, vast number of occupations. They were judges, kings, priests, prophets, shepherds, physicians, tax collectors, fishermen, and many more. They covered a vast number of subjects, histories, population statistics, prophecy, family trees, poetry, law, letter, letters, also just a few that I'm mentioning here. They were written in parts of times of danger, times of sadness, times of exile, And yet through all this diversity, we've got one central theme, and the central is Jesus Christ. Everything points to Jesus Christ. The Bible never contradicts itself. You know, everywhere where people say the Bible contradicts itself, it's only they're looking at it from limited perspectives. If you go and do a decent, thorough study, you see the Bible is not contradicting, it's contradicting itself. And when you look at this, you see that the Bible is pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament, and it's all about Jesus and the, how, what, how Jesus would teaching through the disciples the growth of the church in the New Testament. So how is this possible if it's not divinely inspired? Let's look at Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Can you see the Old Testament? Many, diversity. Many times, 1,000 years, more Many ways, diverse settings, he spoke to the prophets. And what did these prophets do? They, they pointed to Jesus. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And Jesus commissioned the disciples, the followers, to teach people. They would be guided in truth by the Holy Spirit. They would be his witnesses. We saw that they were his witnesses. I referred to just one verse. So the Holy Spirit guided the authors of the Bible. We see this, you can read it, David mentions this. Many authors mention this. I just want to look at 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but, by, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You know, McDowell and McDowell uses a very beautiful analogy. They talk about, it's as if God is conducting and composing this beautiful symphony. And he's got 40 people playing different instruments. You know, it's beautiful. There are drums and trumpets and violins and cellos and flutes and cymbals and, you know, many instruments. Sanka, I wish I could mention more instruments. <laughs> but just imagine, so each of these individuals are playing their own instrument. And they're just playing and God is conducting. And what are we hearing? We're hearing this beautiful symphony. 
So what is this symphony? What is this, this music? What is this message we are hearing? It focuses on four points. What is the message of the Bible? This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can remember this very easily, and we can share this with people. There's four main points. One, God. Two, man. Three, Jesus. Four, what is our response? Firstly, God. He is sovereign. He's almighty. He's holy. He created. He created man. We, were in a, we are in a relationship with God. He's given us this opportunity. Two, we missed the point. We sinned. We fell short. We know the wages of sin is death. The Old Testament shows us we try and get back, we fail. We try and get, but God is faithful. God is faithful. He always takes the, he took the initiative. He sends us, point three, he sends us Jesus, the God-man. Fully God, fully human. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose victoriously, God's justice was satisfied. We sang that in a song this morning so beautifully. God's justice was satisfied. And we were not killed as we deserve because Jesus took our punishment. And because God loves us, he's given us this opportunity. He did not destroy us. We are redeemed in him. Fourthly, what is our response? What is our response? Now we've got to accept that we cannot save ourselves. We need the Savior. We thank him for all he's done. We put our faith and our life in the hands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we start doing good deeds, it's not because we are now good people or doing, we are just, we are just getting closer and being filled more and more by the Holy Spirit. So, so it's not as if we are boasting and starting to do good deeds. We grow in our relationship with God. It's as if we become God's instruments. And it's as if God is using a pen and he's writing poetry and we are merely the ink and it's God's poetry. I remember Kerry mentioning this in a home group session once and it was so, we become his poetry. It's not about us. Lest we should boast. You know, and as we, as we respond, we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And we grow and we grow and we grow. And how do we grow? We talk to him through prayer. And we, 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 we make known to him all our requests. And we glorify him and we praise him for who he is. And we listen to him, how he speaks to us. This is how our relationship grows. So we speak to God and God speaks to us. In essence, this is the message of the Bible. So when we speak to God and He speaks to us, how do we listen? His, how do we hear His voice? How do we listen to His voice? We read it in the Bible. We hear His voice through the Bible. Can you see how? how can you see how we can show that the Bible, or know that the Bible is the Word of God? Now, to con- to conclude, you know, we've got to. I want to encourage you, believers, non-believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've put your faith and your trust in Him, realize, realize anew the precious gift is given to us. You know, read the study it. Realize anew. You know, some of us, some countries don't have any Bible. Some of us have got more than one, one copy of the Bible and it's gathering dust. Realize anew what we've got, the treasure we've got. And as we study it and apply it and our relationship with Jesus grows, we will realize that this book is living and active. For the Word of God is living and active. Now, I know this was written back, way back, but it's living and active still today. You know, and if you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to just start reading. 
pray to Jesus, talk to him. Talk to him. If, even if it sounds weird, talk to him. Start reading. Read some of the Gospels. Find out somebody, learn from somebody you can trust. Work through them. Look, read the Bible in context. When you do this, you'll see that the Bible says it is sweeter than honey. Jesus invites us. He says you'll carry our burdens. In Psalm 119, he says, the, 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 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a compass. It gives us direction, life, direction in our life. You know, the parents, Chris and Super, Jacques and Morena, and last, last week, Sean and me, I encourage you. I'm, you know, it's so exciting to hear your, your commitment to teach your children about Jesus, teach them about the word of God, because I truly believe that our youth will be bombarded with useless information and the devil will come in with the same argument saying, is it true that God said? And you just twist this truth a bit to confuse our youth. But I want to encourage you to know that this is the word of God. You know, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So what is the way? What is the truth? Where do we find out about this? We find it out, yeah. We've seen who Jesus is. This is where we know how to get to Jesus, what Jesus is all about. You know, and another encouraging fact is that the Bible will never get outdated, and I want to close with this. You know, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I hope you are encouraged to just study the word even more diligently now and listen to how God is speaking to you through his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we could meet as a church here and see who you are, Lord. Thank you that you are Lord and Savior of our lives, that you are God, and that this Bible is your word, Lord. Lord, we know that in some countries, people don't even have a page of the Bible. They, tre they treasure a page in a Bible, and they memorize this. Yet we have got so many options to study your word. Lord, help us to study it, apply it to our lives, and realize that you are speaking to us through this, this Bible, your word. I thank you, Lord, that we could be part of a church that, that focuses on your word. I pray, Lord, that Pastor Gareth and the leadership will carry on to build their, their teaching upon this word because you are the way and the truth and the life, Lord. And thank you that we know that your words will never pass away. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.